welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. My name is Dan, and I'm a great recovering sexaholic. Hi there. Um, welcome to this um, meeting on Living in the Solution, Single in SA. Um, we don't have a format. We're powerless over that. So uh, if you like, we'll begin with the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, the wisdom to know the difference. Thy will, not mine, be done. Um, I'll share a little bit of, of my story with you. Um, and then Liana will share some of her story. Um, we've actually been in the program together for almost 12 years now. Um, and uh, we haven't ever dated. We've just gone to the same meetings ever since we've been in the program. So it's good to uh, to share this venue with her and be able to share our experience, strength, our hope, and some of our uh, our foibles as we've gone along the journey. Um, I, I hate to tell you um, that we're giving this talk and we haven't done life perfectly, but that's who we are. We're sexaholics. Um, I thought what I would do, since this is living in the solution, that I'd read the solution from the uh, white book on page 204 or 205. We saw that our problem was threefold, physical, emotional, and spiritual. Healing had to come about in all three. The crucial change in attitude began when we admitted we were powerless, that our habit had us whipped. We came to meetings and withdrew from our habit. For some, this meant no sex with themselves or others, including not getting into relationships. For others, it also meant drying out and not having sex with the spouse for a time to recover from lust. We discovered that we could stop, that not feeding the hunger didn't kill us, that sex was indeed optional. There was hope for freedom, and we began to feel alive. Encouraged to continue, we turned more and more away from our isolating obsession with sex and self and turned to God and others. All this was scary. We couldn't see the path ahead except that others had gone that way before. Each new step of surrender felt it would be off the edge into oblivion, but we took it. And instead of killing us, surrender was killing the obsession. We had stepped into the light, into a whole new way of life. The fellowship gave us monitoring and support to keep us from being overwhelmed, a safe haven where we could finally face ourselves. Instead of covering our feelings with compulsive sex, we began exposing the roots of our spiritual emptiness and hunger, and the healing began. As we faced our defects, we became willing to change. Surrendering them broke the power they had over us. We began to be more comfortable with ourselves and others for the first time without our drugs. Forgiving all who had injured us, and without injuring others, we tried to right our own wrongs. At each amends, more of the dreadful load of guilt dropped from our shoulders until we could lift our heads, look the world in the eye, and stand free. 
we began practicing a positive sobriety, taking the actions of love to improve our relations with others. We were learning how to give, and the measure we gave was the measure we got back. We were finding what none of the substitutes had ever supplied. We were making the real connection. We were home. My name is Dan, and I'm still a gratefully recovering sexaholic. Um, I've been in this program for 12 and a half years. Um, I'm as powerless over lust today as the day I walked into the program. Um, I'd like to tell you that I've, that I've done it all perfectly and I've, and I've, and I've got it all in order and, uh, and, uh, since my program is one of rigorous honesty, um, I have to admit that I've, I've been on this journey for, in recovery, 12 step programs for 13 and a half years and, um, I don't do it perfectly. But I do recovery and I do it one day at a time and, uh, when I fall flat on my face, I feel like I'm still going forward and if I fall on my backside, at least I'm still looking up. Okay. Um, I walked into these rooms. I couldn't talk to another human being. Couldn't carry on a two-minute conversation if you talked for a minute and a half. That's the truth. And as my friends in the program will tell you today, it'll be hard for me to shut up. Because okay. I have a program of recovery that has worked for me that I couldn't have done myself. Um, some of my story, you know, I don't go into a lot of my acting out. I don't know that that's important at this point. Um, I like to share what's worked in the program. And, and that's why this topic is real good for me, living in the solution. I do that on a daily basis. But where I've come from is um, I've acted out in a lot of different ways, and I couldn't carry on a conversation with somebody. Um, I, I had a relationship with God. I've been a Christian for 30 years, um, but it didn't work, and I could never understand why it didn't work. And when I got in these, in these rooms, I started realizing that what was missing was the you connection. I had a relationship with God, but I was trying to live in isolation because I was afraid that you would hurt me. People had hurt me all my life, and I tried to shut you out so you couldn't hurt me anymore. But what I also did was I also kept love away. And what these programs taught me, what these four walls have taught me, is that as sick as you are, you're some pretty healthy people with a lot of love to give. And I had to let that love in. That's what the living in the solution has been for me. Um... How has that worked in being single? Well, before I got into this program, I'd been married for 17 years in a 19-year relationship. And I got into recovery, and four months later, my wife filed for divorce. I was not in this program at that time. About a year later, I found the, the hallowed walls of SA. And it happened in, I went to a, a 12-step bookstore, and I, I don't even know how the conversation Went. Some of you know this kind of a story is all of a sudden in the conversation, the guy was talking about lust and I said, it's got, it's got me by the throat and I can't stop doing it. And he walked over to his cabinet and he said, there's a meeting that deals with this. And he handed me an essay brochure. That was on a Thursday night. The first meeting was the next night and I was in the door. And I've been home ever since. I walked through the program. I learned that I had to work the steps. I had to go to meetings. I had to be connected with the fellowship. But when you're living in fear, how do you get connected up with other people? And for me, that was the part that I had to be completely powerless. I couldn't change that. I wanted things to be different, and they weren't. That's step one. Okay. Well, being a Christian, you know, you would think it would be easy to turn your will and your life over to the care of God as you understand him. 
But when you start doing an inventory and you start realizing that God looks an awful lot like your mother and father, why on earth would you want to turn your life over to that kind of a God? And someone suggested to me that maybe what I needed to do is get a new concept of God. So he said, make up a list of who you want God to be for you. So I did that. And he said, now fire the old one and hire the new one. So sort of by faith, I made the decision to ask God to take care of me and to start teaching me what I needed to do to live in the solution on a daily basis. Okay. Well, that involved people. Some of you sitting in this room. Because I had to let go of my old concepts and my old ideas of what God was, how he was going to work, and what he could do for me. Where I am today is a result of that. How do you live single in this program? Well, if you're afraid of people, it's really easy not to get into sexual relationships. Okay. Really easy. You know, lust and fantasy is an entirely different story. Okay. Because I could, I could still have the fantasy going on in my mind, but I wasn't going to act out. Okay. And I haven't had to act out since I've been in this program, 12 and a half years, on a daily basis, with myself. That, that's pretty astounding. Okay. So stop and think, you know, here I am and I'm trying to work a program and I don't want to act out with anybody, and, but yet I'm still powerless over lust. Can't stop the images in my mind. Well, that's what the daily journey has been in working the steps in the program. Um, about a little over uh, six years into the program, about seven years ago, I got into a relationship. And, you know, you would think having been married for 17 years that I've had some concept of what relationships were about and what intimacy was about. But I'll sit here today and admit to you, I didn't have a clue. Because when I was married, I was emotionally dead. Didn't have a thought, didn't have a feeling, had no way to express who I was or what my needs were or what I wanted or what I hoped for. Didn't I didn't know that any of those things existed. And I got into a relationship. Um, I, I haven't been sexually sober by the definition of the program, which is no sex with myself or anyone I'm not married to. But I'll tell you that there was some physical intimacy, but there was no sexual relationship, no sexual intercourse. Okay. So at some level, I've had no sexual relationships with anybody in 12 and a half years, 13 and a half years. But what I didn't know was what intimacy was about. And so I got into a situation where I'm starting to get upset with somebody that's in front of me. And how do you deal with that? Well, what I learned in the program is to go back to my sponsor, to go back to God and start saying, what's going on? And I realized I could love somebody and still be angry at them. Okay. What a concept. Now, I grew up in a family where the only person that was allowed to be angry was my mother. Okay. Nobody else was allowed to do that. So I didn't know how to deal with anger. I didn't know how to deal with discouragement. And I would get frustrated and I didn't know what to do. And my friend would say, just start talking. Because she was in a 12-step program. And I'd go, I don't know what to talk about. I don't know where I am. I don't know what's going on. She said, doesn't matter. Just start talking. What I learned was, if I started talking, within two minutes, the answer came out of my own mouth. Because buried somewhere down deep inside was the desire to want to be free from all of the addiction and all of the pain and all the suffering. Okay. Um, I've been sexually sober since Thanksgiving of 94. So that's over six years now. So you figure somewhere I've got over 11 years of sobriety in this program. But how do you do living sober? Nine years ago, um, I started going out with a young lady and didn't know how to communicate. I was still unable to talk. We went out for about six months, 
And I bailed out of the relationship. Didn't tell her what was going on, why I was there, how to work the program. I didn't tell her anything of what was going on, per se. And the truth of the matter is, I didn't want to end up in her bedroom, and I didn't know how to tell her that. I couldn't talk. This is nine years ago. About a little over a year ago, we reconnected. Okay. And I called her up and I said, would you like to go out on a date? And she said, why? And so I made amends for what I had done before and leaving the relationship and not talking and communicating with her. Okay. What the program has taught me, because I've worked my program on a daily basis, anybody that's been around me can tell you I drive them nuts talking to them about acceptance and all the other, the other uh, tools of the program, because I've had to keep my face buried in the book and buried in the program and buried in recovery. That's the only thing that's worked for me. So I shared with her that I didn't want to end up in her bedroom, and I made amends for that. And as we've continued the relationship, sober, on a daily basis, what we've come to discover is if we'd gotten into that relationship back then, we would have destroyed each other. We were not ready. Okay? What I'll tell you after having had this relationship now for a year is 28 days from now, we're going to get married. Okay? Now, I share that with you because that's going to give some of you hope. Okay? Twelve and a half years in this program, not expecting anything, not really looking for something, and then having God bring somebody from Connecticut 3,000 miles across the country to put her in my life for me to bail out of the relationship, to surrender to God and say, I can't deal with this, I don't know what you want, and then to have the door just fly back open a year ago and to be in a position to ask somebody to marry me, somebody who's lived, somebody, I've lived my entire life in fear of what's going to happen. And not to be in fear of today or not to be in fear of what's going to happen in 28 days. You know, I'm powerless over all of that. All of it is a gift. All of it is, is just God saying, you know, you've been faithful doing what I've asked you to do. Now here, let me give you something as a free gift. And it's like, you know, it's hard for some of us to receive. You can take a two by four, bat me over the head. I can handle that real well. I grew up with that. But tell me you love me and you've got a gift for me. It's something that's going to work. And it's a result of being faithful to this program and talking with the sponsor, talking with other people in the fellowship, opening myself up and sharing, listening, learning how to do that. All as the results of being powerless and surrendering to God and saying, I don't know what you want. I don't know how you're going to do it, but whatever your will is, I want it. That's that's what this program has taught me. And I do that on a daily basis. Um, I didn't share that I still pray for my ex-wife every single morning and for my stepdaughters. I don't know what they need. I know they need God, but I don't know how they need God. So I don't tell God what he needs to do for them and because I'm not their higher power. And some of you will be grateful to know I pray for you, but I don't tell God what you need either. Because this is a spiritual fellowship. I don't know what anybody needs. Because I stop and, re- and recall, I didn't know what I needed in recovery to get well. And I've had to surrender all of that to God and say, here I am, what do you want? On a daily basis. And I can tell you that where I am today is a result of doing all the footwork, but I certainly never expected to be where I am. So that's that's the story of, of, um, of growth for me. It, it's been a process, it's a journey. My sponsor shared the same thing with me. He got married, and uh, he had already left the program, but he got married two and a half years ago. 
And that gave me hope that it was possible. So I, I don't know what anybody needs. You know, nobody's here by accident. That's the one thing I do know, that we're all here because this is this is God's best for us right now at the moment. So I would encourage you, if I don't share something that, that, hurt, that helps you, maybe somebody else will share something. Maybe somebody else in the room when we open it up will be able to share. But... If, if we're, if we're willing to turn all of that over to God and, and let the, the insanity of our mind just drop by the wayside and put aside all of our judgments and our critical thoughts and, and beating ourselves up. I know there aren't too many people, but some of you will probably beat yourself up for where you are being a sexaholic. You know, today I, I am grateful that I'm a sexaholic. If I wasn't a sexaholic, I wouldn't have a relationship with God. I wouldn't have a relationship with you. And I wouldn't have an honest relationship with another human being who knows who I am, what I've done, and still loves me. What a concept. Because I've had to turn it over to a power that's greater than myself to, who is still in the process of restoring me to sanity. I won't say I'm, I'm, I'm cured yet, but I'm on, on the road to progress. Okay, thanks for letting me think. My name is uh, Liliana, and I'm a recovering sexaholic. My sobriety date is January the 10th, 1995. I came into the fellowship um, March the 7th, 1989, and I had a major slip right after my um, fifth um, birthday chip in 94. Uh, And it was a long 94. Before I could get uh, my sobriety back, and um, I really knew at that time that I needed to work a different program in SA. I needed a better foundation, and um, so I was very attuned from then on. I was attuned before, but in a more particular way, I was attuned to listening to people who were working this program. And what I call, you know, the winners in these programs, you know, who are, who are working and focusing on the solution. And, um, and I once, um, I was, uh, I went to hear a talk and, um, this person who works at a treatment center had discovered informally those people who were, um, able to stay sober versus the people who were not able to stay sober. And what he discovered is, like there was, uh, let's just say there's about 12 tools in this 12-step fellowship. And the people that used all 12 tools, or most of all 12 tools, every day seemed to stay sober. And the people who only used one or two tools every day or now and then did not seem to stay sober. So I got a real clue um, on... Um, what I needed to do, I needed to practice, 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 using the tools of the 12-step fellowship. Uh, you know, I know you all heard this, the, the, the guy says, how do I get to Carnegie Hall? And they said, well, practice, practice, practice. And um, what, you know, what, 
Another metaphor for me is I remember as an adult, I decided, you know, as a child I had wanted to take ballet, and so I took ballet, and there's five steps in ballet. From those five steps, you see those people do all kinds of movements. That's only five steps. But to do those five steps and, and all those kind of movements, they practice, practice, practice. They are very dedicated. So um, I made me a list, and every day I would check off whenever I used a tool. And, and one of the tools that um, I had not been using but I started using was a telephone. So myself and another person shared, oh, my gosh, you know, I got ten tools today that I used. And it was um, it was a really um, very helpful to me because when you use a tool, it's not like the first time you're going to be good at using the tool. When I first started using the tool of sponsorship, I wasn't that good. Or sponsoring another person, I, I wasn't that good. Um, I probably have been fired quite a few times for being a sponsor. But, you know, I have the rest of my life to practice, so I probably will improve. So what I, di- what I discovered is I just needed to um, use um, and practice these tools on a daily basis. And um, there, there are uh, a lot of uh, tools. I'll just mention a few: um, meetings, sponsorships, service, steps, literature, tapes, conferences, going to conferences, phone calls. I guess now email, uh, talking to newcomers, helping the newcomers, prayer and meditation, fellowship, um, higher power. What? Um, what I discovered also is that um, this takes hard work. You know, I mean, there's something about us that when we get a newcomer, we want to make it sound like, well, it's not going to be that bad. It's kind of, you know, it's going to come along easy. No, no, believe me. If you want to work this program, you are going to work very hard. It's, that's been my experience. The second time around in um, building my program of recovery. So... Um, that's and I, you know, that's what I do. And just as an example, yesterday I was at a work-related professional conference in San Diego, where I live, and and I came home in the evening to regroup and to get ready to come to this conference. But you know, when you come from an intense situation, and I come to my my home, I live alone. It was like coming down a little bit, and um. Certain feelings start to come in. And so when I'm feeling that's, or when I'm starting to think, you know, that's sometimes not the best place. So I just said, well, gosh, I'll listen to a tape. And I listened to a tape. And I just slowly did the things that I needed to do in my house and to get ready for today. And I also had time to pray. And, um, and then I guess since I did a little bit, it seems like my higher power then just helps me out a little bit. Somebody, uh, an SA woman called me up long distance. She was in crisis. It was like I'd been saved. I was so happy to hear her voice. I was, you know, but that was my, that was like a gift from heaven. 
and we were able to, you know, share and, and, you know, there was no immediate solution, but just the sharing. I don't know what it did for her, but for me, it was, it helped me immensely, um, in terms of just doing the evening. And, um, I was able to, um, you know, check off things that I did yesterday, like the sobriety renewals, prayer and meditation, sponsorship, service, steps, read some literature, listened to tapes, um, phone call. I did email a few people, um, and let's see, I, higher power. Those are the tools that I used yesterday. And I would have used more, like I would have gone to a meeting, but I um, was getting ready for this um, coming here, and I, I just needed some downtime. So I decided to to do that for myself. And I think what um, what I've learned uh, in terms of living in the solution is that those things for a sexaholic that that are really hard, like taking the actions of love when you don't feel like it. Like learning how to give when you don't feel like it. Um, and I, I had an opportunity with my family over the holidays. Um, I have the youngest sister who's uh, 20 years younger than me and has six children, so she's around the holiday time. She was really, really uh, stressed out. And one of the least favorite things in my life is cleaning house. But I told her uh, in a moment of, I guess I must have had a lapse of something, I said, I'll come over and clean your house. And I just asked God for a favor. I said, please don't make me sick on that day, because I know I will go and do it whether I'm sick or not. And um, and even while, you know, while I was cleaning house, I had to mentally pray because as I said, it's not my favorite thing to do. But in terms of, of um, you know, this is just like common for people to do to for each other, help each other. You know, families help each other. But as a, as in my past, as a sexaholic, this is not something I would normally do. And um, those those are the the kinds of things that I've kind of learned. I, I've learned that. You know, love is is a verb, and it takes action, and you don't have to feel it. You can take the action. And I've also learned that uh, service and newcomers are um, what saves me. I had a crisis uh, in my essay program last um, October, and um, I was just feeling uh, really, really... Um, like I was kind of losing it. And I had an opportunity to um, connect with some newcomers, and it was a blessing. I don't know what it did for them, but for me, it helped get me out of that stuck place. And, of course, um, I did express to several people that, you know, I had been looking for a sponsor, and... and um, didn't have a sponsor, and that was one of my difficulties. Is how, you know, I didn't. I was in this crisis, so I had asked a, a couple of women, but um, they were looked up basically. 
So somebody suggested I ask um, um, a man to sponsor me, temporarily at least. Well, I did have one male friend that I could ask to be my sponsor. And guess what he said? He would be willing to be my temporary sponsor. And he would be willing to uh, make me accountable for my actions. Um, and so I was really, really grateful. And it did pull me through that, that crisis where uh, the lust had just kicked in. It was as real as, as anything. And um, recently I did get a, a woman who agreed to be my sponsor. So I, I was able to thank Dan for his service. And uh, <laughs> and I'm very grateful for that. Um, you know, Dan and I have been able to be very good friends um, through all the years that I've been in SA, almost 12, and I've just been—it's been a great support friendship. Those kinds of friendships I would have never had when I was in my disease. I could have never had a male friend for long. And now I have male friends that are very, very dear to me, as well, you know, as well as female friends. And basically, you know, part of friendship is you tell people who you are. And in the past, of course, I, I, um, that was problematic. So, um, so these days I tell people uh, who I am as much as I can and and then, you know, we can proceed, if we can proceed toward friendship in a deeper level, then that's a gift from God. If not, that's fine too. Um, I was, I can say um, briefly, you know, I was married for seven years. And I have one adult daughter with two grandchildren. And um, the life I have now is is just... Um, there's just so many uh, gifts I, I cannot I cannot believe. You know, I the ability to connect with other people in a healthy way and to set boundaries and to say no was just not something that I was able to do. And now I can set boundaries and say no. And it really is hard to have relationships with people if you can't do that. And I I I learned these in this room. That's where I've learned it. That's where I've gotten to practice now. Where do you get to practice? If you practice out there, you know, you have a lot of messages out there that are going to feed um, the lust machine. But in here, you know, you have you have messages that there is uh, there are other options. And um, I've gotten to, to practice um, being in this fellowship. Fellowship has been, you know, a real difficult one for me. I haven't quite understood it completely in essay because, um, you know, because of the nature of, of lust. But, I, you know, I've learned, I've learned, um, and I guess one of the things is that I do pray for the fellowship on a daily basis, and that's kind of helped pave the way for me. Another thing uh, that I've learned in this uh, fellowship, and one of the things, you know, I love coming to conferences, but one of the difficulties in conferences, I get so much, and then when I get back to my life, I have trouble integrating it. 
back into my life. And um, going to that very next step that I need to go for my recovery. And for the past six weeks, I've, I've used a tool on a daily basis that has helped me tremendously in integrating what I need to integrate, where I am. And that's just sitting still twice a day. And you can start out with 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Um, you know, now I'm up to a half hour. But just sitting still and breathing twice a day. And somehow, uh, one of the things I like about it is that I tend to worry or think about people and things. And even though those thoughts still come to me while I'm sitting still and very quiet, I know that they're just thoughts. And I can, for now, those 30 minutes, I don't have to come up with a solution. I don't have to, to know an answer. I can just let it go. And, and I've discovered that that is just a real good tool for also integrating what I need to integrate in terms of where I am in my program. You know, what I learned from that big slip that I had is that I somehow had underestimated less for me. And I never want to do that again. I never, never want to underestimate lust in my life. And the way I keep it green is by listening to the newcomers. Because whatever they express, whatever they're going through, I've had that experience and can have it again. You know, I um, my intention is to um, live a sober life in recovery. And I know I've had many women um, who have asked me, and even some men, like, well, you do want a relationship, don't you? And maybe even to get married, <laughs> you know. And most of the time, you know, I'm just so overwrought with life, I can't even think that far. But to comfort them, I say, oh, well, of course, you know, so that they, that I can have some hope. But, you know... What I've learned is that, you know, I can have a good life, whatever God has for me. What God's will for me is in my life. It may be, you know, to be challenged by having a partner. I mean, it, you know, let's face it, it's, it's, it's a, a real challenge. And, um, and it's a real challenge being single. You know, it's no fun sometimes being lonely. And I have um, certainly had a lot of practice being lonely. And it's no fun at all. I don't recommend it for anyone. And I have um, learned that, you know, the biggest loneliness periods for me have been any holiday. Any holiday. Because the rest of the time it's like routine. But the holidays are not routine. And I have learned that um, there's always a meeting to go to. And sometimes, you know, there's very few people that show up, but you know what? I can connect with other people in a healthy way on a holiday. I don't have to have the picture, the American picture, and, you know, and I don't have to pretend like, you know, this is just wonderful. Isn't it, you know, Merry Christmas, aren't, isn't this wonderful? <laughs> I don't have to do all that pretending. But I can in my own way have my, in a single, in my single lifestyle, I can set up my own little um, what I call pleasurable rituals that make sense to me. 
so, you know, that's one challenge as a single that, that I certainly have um, learned to deal with in a, in a much more um, positive, constructive way. Uh, another thing is, you know, one of the things I like about service is that it kind of is a, that, you know, it gets in the way of self-pity. And um, I think self-pity is something that everybody should avoid at all costs. But if sometimes if you're just slumped over on what, like at the, let's say it's a um, Saturday evening, and you're sure, you know, most people are out with other people, but there you are, sucking your thumb, and you don't even have a good book. So, you know, it's it's something that, um, you know, at those points I have written in my journal. I forgot to mention that of the tool. I've been a journal writer for many years, but um, I've written in my journal. I've written letters. I've made phone calls. Um, I've um, got into trying a new recipe. I mean, I've been able to do other things rather than to get into some of those um, potholes of, of a single life. You know, I um, I don't know what God has for me in my life. I really don't. I just know that the more I am in today, the more I'm just present to this time in my life, today, this moment, that the more gifts that I'm grateful for. When I'm either in the past or in the future, it seems like, um, you know, there's problems there. There's problems to be solved in the future, and there's these problems that I never got over in the past. But in the present, you know, I'm a happy camper. I'm a, I'm, um, I'm just, I mean, I never really know, um, what, what is coming, one of the things I found about that's exciting about this adventure of recovery is that when you're in the disease, you always know the outcome. It's the same lousy outcome. But when you're in the solution, you never know the outcome. You never know what friendships you're going to make. You never know what gifts you're going to be developed, you know, in you. You never know what, um, what possibilities that you're going to enjoy when you're in the solution. Because it's, suddenly life just takes on another another element, and it is more like an adventure. You know, I just want to um, end with saying that you know this practice is not something that I don't think that I could. Um, you know, I'm not going to put my tools aside and say, well, you know, I've had enough of that, and and I'm doing okay, etc. You know, I think that, that I'm going to um, continue, you know, practicing and practicing and practicing and working with others because I think that this is this is going to save save my life. You know, and this has saved my life. This fellowship has saved my life. I have no doubt that I would have been an AIDS statistic six feet under 
if I had not come into this fellowship or if this fellowship had not existed. So I'm, I'm very, very grateful to uh, share with you, and I'm going to turn the mic back over to Dan. My name is Dan. I'm a grateful recovering sexaholic. Um, some of the things she shared uh, sort of brought up a few other things that I'd like to share with you. Um, how many of you know that a relationship will not save you? Okay. How many of us, knowing the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over, expecting different results, knows that we'll still get into the same kind of relationships as we have in the past unless we go back to God and let him heal us? Okay. And what she's talking about is taking this one day at a time and asking God to go back and heal whatever's the obstacle. And one of the greatest obstacles that I know of to relationships, especially those of us who are, are single, but I want to share one other thing with before we had a... We had a meeting years and years ago, and they haven't done it in a lot of years, and, and it just brought it back to mind. Um, we had we had a meeting that we used to go out and do things together. We'd go out and bowl. We'd have parties together. And, and the thing that, that I think it helped with us is we learned how to interrelate with male and female, because it wasn't a male meeting or a female meeting. It was all of us going out and living life together on the outside. We'd, we'd get together with uh, with families of sexaholics. Um, and, and it was a real good, it, it was a real good experience for those of us who were living single and didn't know how to get out of that. The, the other thing that, that to me has been a real critical key is, um, the greatest obstacle that I can tell you that I have to having any kind of a relationship are my expectations. Okay? When I grew up, my family was, this is the way you did things, and if you did it this way, you were okay, if you didn't do it that way, you weren't okay. And what basically what I learned was conditional love. And I expected people to take care of my needs, and they couldn't do it. So I was running around expecting a, a spouse to do that for me. Now, how many of you know that, that some spouses are not really happy to take over as a mother or a father? Okay? And it, and it never dawned on me when I was, in, you know, when I was married that that was the obstacle, was, the, was my neediness my expectation of how somebody else should meet it. Being in the program and working through the steps, especially doing step four, what are my resentments, my fears, and my sexual issues, and the harms that I've done to other people, I started looking at what my part was, not what the other person was doing. And as I started to do that, um, being single became a, a one-day-at-a-time opportunity to ask God to remove those things. I'm in a relationship today because the majority of those things that were obstacles when I was a kid growing up and I was married before are no longer part of my life. Okay? But I couldn't have told you 12 years ago that now I'd be in a relationship and none of those things would be an obstacle. Because I, I figured that I was never going to have one. You know, I spent most of my life in pain and discouragement. Hit me over the head with the two by four and I can handle that real well. Tell me you love me and, and I want to push you away because I can't handle that. And most of us have destroyed relationships that have come into our lives because we don't know how to accept them. We don't know how to handle them. And I think the greatest gift for me in this program is to be around other people who are working the program and saying, this is what I did and this is the problem that I ran into and the solution was dot, dot, dot. I did this. This is my experience. This is how I got out of doing what I was doing before that didn't work, 
And this is what I'm doing now that does. Okay? We're talking about living in the solution. Our key meeting is a topic meeting at home. Our Tuesday night meeting. We don't allow dumping anymore. You can't come in there and whine and cry and say, Oh, life is no good. You know, look what's going on in my life. Okay? The leader shares from a topic that he chooses, he or she chooses shares their experience, strength, and hope, and sometimes it isn't a good place for them. Okay, They've been struggling with something. But when they start sharing that, everybody else starts identifying. And it's amazing because this is a spiritual program. How many of us are in the same place on the same day or in the same week? And we share what's going on with ourselves. In the process of doing that, we start recognizing that we can be honest with each other, share what's going on, and not have to blame or criticize somebody else. What I know today is if you come up and you step on my toes, I'm talking figuratively, that I don't have to react to what you say or what you do, which is what I did all the time growing up, and then I got defensive and I put up my shield and, and you couldn't get in and I wouldn't get out. I hid. You know, I don't know about you, I, I don't think uh, relationships work real well that way. Never did for me. So the process for me was learning how to let those shields down. And what, I, what I've come to realize is if you come up and you punch one of my pain buttons, my wounds, and I don't react to you, my alternative is to go back to God and say, where did this come from, what's happening, and what do I need to do about it? Okay. The problem isn't out here. The problem is inside. Well, the solution is inside, too. Okay. You can't fix me. I can't fix you. But I have to go back to God and say, what's going on here? Where did this come from and what do I need to do about it? And I will tell you that 90% of the time of my life when I've done that, it's always been something of the past that I never dealt with. And recovery for me today isn't going back in time and, and, and regurgitating the problem. It's going back and saying, you know, God, this happened to me when I was 5 years old or 10 years old or 20 years old or the last... ...unconditionally that I need to do that. I don't have options in this program anymore. You know, I'm 57 years old. I don't want to wait another 12 years to try and see if another relationship's going to work. I don't know if I got that much time. Okay. But on a daily basis, what I've learned is to turn all of that over to God. Absolute surrender, and we've heard it. We've heard it all weekend. Okay, it's not an option. I mean, I, at some level, I wish it was. But what I've learned is, when it was an option, I didn't do it anyway. Now that I do it on a daily basis, my life has totally changed. And I don't have to go back to doing what I used to do. On a daily basis. I never have to act out again. Okay. Do I have any guarantees? Absolutely not. Do I know that this relationship is going to work out? Absolutely not. I'm as powerless over my current relationship as I've ever been over any day in my life. But there's a difference. I have a power in my life that's greater than I am, and she isn't it. And I'm not hers. Okay, so when turmoil comes up, and believe it or not, a couple of times it has, we're able to go back to God ourselves instead of grabbing the other person by the throat and saying, spit it out, what's going on? Fix this, you know, let's get through this. And we go back to God, and sometimes it's taken me two weeks because I still am reticent to trust. And she's given me that freedom to do that. Okay, whatever time it's taken me. The longest has been two weeks. And at the end of two weeks, God told me what was going on. I was able to go back and say, this is the problem. This is what happened. This is why I was reacting the way I did. Will you forgive me? And I'm sorry. Let's move on. 
Okay? Because she's got a relationship with God, she's doing the same thing. Okay? And I don't have to, I don't have to say straighten up. Fix yourself. Okay? I can't fix you. I can't fix me. I'm powerless. That's step one. God can restore me to sanity. I believe that today. I haven't always believed that. Okay? I never, at one time I never thought I was ever sane to begin with. Okay? So, and the process is turning my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand Him. Not the way I want Him to be, not the way I wish He was, not what He didn't do, not what He's doing, what I think He ought to do in the future, but where I am today. And just trusting that in the, in the process of my surrender, that good is going to come. God has my best in mind today if I will give Him permission to reveal it to me. Okay? That's not a baseball bat anymore. Okay? It's not living in isolation anymore. Relationship or no relationship, I would still have this relationship with God because I learned to trust Him on a daily basis, not try and fix the past and be afraid of what's going to happen tomorrow, like Liliana said. Um, so that's that's all that, that we're going to share now. There's a little bit of time for either open sharing or for questions, if any of you have questions. Um, if you'd like to share Please use the microphone because this is being taped. If you don't want to use the microphone, please at this time don't share so that it can be picked up on the tape. Okay, thanks. My name is Dee. I'm a grateful sexaholic in Essanon. And I've been in the program going on eight years now, but I've only been sexually sober since the 6th of December, this past December. And I can say for the first time in the eight years that it's okay that I'm single. And it's okay that I'm not going to have sex with anybody. And it's okay that I'm not going to have sex with myself. And it's okay if tomorrow I don't meet the guy. And it's okay if next week I don't meet the guy. Because... um I realize that right now my significant other is God. And um, I'm starting to look at God. I mean, when I can clear away the fantasy and the, the, the anger, the resentment, all the, um, the pus, if you will, of the disease, um, then I notice how clear the sky is or what a beautiful sunset that is or... You know, um, notice somebody laughing or a smile, the crinkle of a smile in somebody's eyes, those things. And um, I think to myself, wow, who created this? You know, or the ocean or a waterfall or or um, kids. Who created this? What force created this? What intelligence created this? And I find myself falling in love with that force, that intelligence. It's, it's a greater force than any guy, than, than Keanu Reeves or Brad Pitt, right? And um, I was always looking for kind of a superhero. And, well, frankly, I'm beginning to look at God as my superhero. And um, I was noticing I had to get sober really fast because it was easy for me. I was, I was um, sober for long periods of time during those uh, first seven years. And that's because I was an emotional anorexic. I'm also, I was also a, a physical and sexual anorexic, meaning that I deprived myself. I, I was frightened of those things. And so this was a great little um, 
rabbit hole for me to be in. And I was not tested. I wasn't tested at all. So it was easy for me to go in there and brag about my sobriety date because I wouldn't interact with the opposite sex except for in SA meetings. Um, so I finally, I got lonely too, very lonely, and I thought that I'd reached a point uh, this past summer in my recovery that I could have a relationship. And I didn't ask God, I decided, because I was so lonely. So I just, I consciously decided that I was going to send my radar back up and I was going to start looking, you know, start looking for my, 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 um, soulmate. And I found a guy who, 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 you know, fit my job description. He was an avoidance addict. I'm a love addict. And, um, and what I want, the expectations, what I, I, what I have is I've got these overlays of, of um, all these needs from child, childhood. There was a, there was incest and there was um, battering and um, physical abuse and there was emotional abuse and there was emotional abandonment from my dad. So all of those, that's there and I'll, I expect to be healed by the guy from that. And also I expect him to be very rich, have a nice house that I could just walk right into because I don't have a house of my own yet. And, um, have gone through lots of rites of passages that I myself have not gone through because I've been diseased. So I'm kind of stuck actually at maybe 16 years old. And I'm expecting some adult male who's gone through a lot of rites of passage, i.e., you know, escrow and gotten his own house and stuff. I consider that a big deal, right? Because I haven't done it yet. I also realized that as a child when all the abuse was going on, I used, um, the media as my drug of choice. In other words, TV. I used TV a lot. I was glommed onto that TV set from, from the time we got a television into our house. Then I was glommed onto romance magazines and then um, fashion magazines, Cosmopolitan, Seventeen magazine, because there was so much dysfunction in my household and I knew that this is not really the way life is supposed to be. I looked around for where it might be normal. And fathers knows best and leave it to beaver, and all of those things portrayed a normal, supposedly normal household. Seventeen magazine gave me clues on how to be acceptable as a female, and I glommed onto that because I had nowhere else to look, and that's what I was addicted to. Um, And because, of course, I couldn't be perfect looking, and my hair couldn't always look perfect, and I didn't always know the right thing to say to the guy and stuff, you know, and I was, the foundation was just so rotted inside. I had, I was very insecure inside if I didn't have my makeup on properly. Um, so, so that I would look for a guy who wouldn't be there because that's what I was used to. My dad wasn't there. And I could fill it with romance and fantasy. I could fill it with every idea I ever studied from Seventeen magazine. And of course that wasn't a real relationship. Um, I also got the the age panic. Um, I'm 51 years old, and I'm thinking, my God, I'm 51 years old. I don't have a guy. I don't have a guy with a retirement fund. What am I going to do? I don't have a guy with a house. Where am I going to live? I'm okay with that now because i got to tell you that when I first got into this program, giving it over to God, surrendering to God, my higher power, you know, asking my higher power, that was all concept. Okay, I'll do that. Okay, you know, God's a concept because I hadn't really had a real experience of God. But I just want to share from my own experience. 
that when you get your experience with God, boy, it is a mind blower. And you'll know without a doubt, you'll know without a doubt that there, <laughs> there's definitely something around. And, and I had to just do the motions. I just had to do it by rote because God was just G-O-D to me. It was just a word. It was just D-O-D on a paper, a piece of paper. I didn't know what the hell God was. But by doing all the things they said, by doing the tools and stuff, and by having willingness in the heart, you, you will have your burning bush. And, and I'll tell you, relationships pale in comparison to, to relationship with, with, you know, can't even put words to it because it is so mind blowing and heart blowing. It just, the spiritual awakening is really, wow, it's an awakening. And so I just want to say that, um, just keep doing the tools and stuff and, You'll be blown. <laughs> Hi, I'm Mark. I'm a sexaholic. Um, you know, I was about nine months sober last year, and a therapist said to me, I told him I was uh, sober and what that meant, and he said, aren't you lonely? And I go, yeah, I must be lonely because he's trained to tell me I'm lonely. And uh, what I'm seeing for myself today is I'm the least lonely I've ever been. Um, I have a disease that tells me I don't have a disease. And I have a disease that tells me I didn't used to be lonely. And when I look at it honestly, I was so lonely back when I was acting out. And there's n- for me, I can't even imagine a more lonely feeling than acting out with someone I don't even like, but I need to act out with them to get something from them. I'm just so alone. It's that kind of loneliness where you're on a city street with a million people, but you're more lonely than when you're on a hike with, or that the loneliness of acting out with another man's wife. And you have to see him again and pretend like it didn't happen. And you're not connecting with that person at all anymore. So that, today, I'm not lonely. Today, I'm the least lonely I've ever been and I just need to, I need to look closely at what loneliness is for me. Thanks. Thanks. I'm Bill. I'm a sexaholic. Hi, everybody. Good to be here. Thanks. To, to uh, Liliana and, and Dan for for paneling and um, so uh, I'm powerless over lust. I'm powerless over the fact that I'm single. Um, and I guess where I just to quickly say that for me, uh, I would have um, periods of sobriety over the last 12 years, and uh, I would they were 30 days to 70 days in those kind. They were usually technical sobriety. Uh, where I would be trying not to uh, masturbate, uh, trying not to have phone sex, that kind of stuff. Uh, but still, I was in my head with the lust. And the most insidious was getting back into a relationship. I, I got in and out through my first and four steps. I, I was in 80-some relationships, whether they were a day or five years. Uh, there were all these kind of hostage-taking situations. And, uh, and, uh, but... 
I always had this reservation to be in a relationship like that, that I needed to be in a relationship or I wanted that. And that would always uh, be the lust thinking that would make me go act out again. And then I realized a couple of years ago, I called a friend and I said that uh, what I'm going to, to do is is I'm go- not going to have sex until marriage. And he, he said, why, you know, sounds kind of crazy, but why are you thinking that way? And I said, because if I do that, I might have to develop a friendship with a person. And then this way, if I'm thinking about um, having sex, I can say, well, I can't have sex until I'm married. So that's a futile thought. It was sort of an external at the time. And then I heard about SA, and I read in the uh, white book the sobriety definition, and I said, man, those people are crazy Um, because it didn't come from me. So when when I think of something, it's cool. When you tell me to do it, it's punishment. So how I stay sober today, just in closing, is, uh, well, I don't know how I stay sober. Thank you, God. But... um, uh, the solution for me is that I'm single, and sex, I love the three words, sex is optional. Like, I have to believe that sex is optional, and I am willing, and I have to do this about once a week. It was about every hour on the hour, but now it's about once a week. I'll see somebody or think of somebody or I'll have a feeling and I want to be in a relationship, and I realize I'm not in a relationship, and if I keep thinking that thought, that I'm going to want to act out. I mean, it's just a matter of minutes for me. I, it doesn't take me long to have a fantasy and, and then to act out. And what I do is I just surrender. I'm willing to, and this is just today, you know, I'm willing to not be in a relationship. I'm willing to live my life single. And the funny thing about that is it's not horrible. It's just not like this deprived state that society tells me it is or that I tell myself or some of my friends and family emphatically tell me that I need to be married. But it's not, you know, I'm single. It's like you're somebody's married and somebody's single, you know, somebody's white, somebody's black, somebody's male, somebody's female. I mean, not everybody's has the same characteristics of their life. It's just a fact of life. You know, there's trees on the East Coast, there's trees on the West Coast, and they look completely different, you know. But... Uh, they're all connected, you know, we're all connected. And uh, so I don't need, like, to have sex today. I don't need to be in a relationship today. Uh, would I like to? You know, my addict, my ego would like to because it says that I have a whole void inside me and that, that entity, that person could fill it. But, you know, back in Philly, we always talk about uh, that we have a, a, a God-shaped hole inside of us and we're looking for somebody else to fill that up. And it, it never fits, you know. So it's great to be a sexaholic. Thanks. Thank you, Dan. Hi, my name is Bob, and I'm a sexaholic. Uh, I need to tell you that I was active in Sexaholics Anonymous for two years. I've been relatively free of it for the last five years, uh, doing service in another fellowship. Something brought me up here today. Um, I haven't been actively acting out, and I haven't broken the law with my acting out, but... I have acted out with myself during that last five years. Um, my fear of relationships and uh, fear of other people, coupled with the need to to somehow make a sexual connection with others, led me into a lot of deviant behavior that uh, caused me problems with the legal system over the years and um, caused me a great deal of shame and uh, um, a lot of destruction in my life and a lot of damage to others. Uh, 
my primary means of acting out was exposing and uh, fueled with drugs and alcohol. Uh, I carried it to uh, an extreme that most people like myself don't. Uh, I'm free of the law-breaking side of that today, but as I said, I've acted out with myself. Um, when I was about 10, I was raped by the lady across the street, a drunk, and uh, I never told anybody about it. And uh, at the time, I thought she was doing me a favor by relieving me of some pent-up energy that I had. And I, I never saw until years later, when I took the steps, what a destructive impact that had on my life, the rest of my life. It also coupled sex with secrecy, and I always lived a hidden secret life with sex. Uh, whether I was in the bathroom or in the closet or out in the car or on the street, uh, I was always, there was a hidden place inside myself I didn't share with those people who weren't my victims, and I, I did have victims. Um, one of the things that I did um, when I was active in, in SA in San Diego was uh, begin corresponding with incarcerated sexaholics, and I, I still do that, uh, alcoholics as well. One of the guys was at a Tascadero. Uh, I corresponded with him for two years, year and a half, two years. I didn't hear from him for a while. He called me when he got out and tried to get him to go to meetings, and he had his own agenda. I saw his name in the paper the other day. The police shot him twice in San Diego in a dorm, a um, stalking case. I wrote him and got a letter back from him. It's hard to write. They blew one hand off. The disease is cunning and baffling and powerful. He told me in the letter that he was on a suicide run for five days and couldn't get the courage to do it himself, and he couldn't stop acting out, so he chose the police as the vehicle to commit suicide. Now he's looking at life in prison with one hand, and I don't know what that's going to be like, but it's my friend, and I'm there for him. Well, thank you very much for letting me share today. question for Dan. How do you um, date without um, having it become lustful? Dan Sexaholic. Um, this is a really good question, isn't it? For all of you out there. Um, you know, the only thing that I can tell you is I've had to deal with lust for almost all of my life. And what I learned in this program is I had to surrender that on a daily basis long before I ever got to going out. Okay? Lust is what brought me into the program. There were other things that I did that act out. But, but lust was always in my head. You know, and I couldn't get rid of it. And what I learned in this program was steps one, two, and three. I can't. God can. I'll let him. And on a daily basis, I practice those three steps. And I start by rolling out of bed onto my knees and praying, asking what God's will is for me for the day, turning my life over to Him. And I add one part to it, and that's asking Him, uh, thanking Him for where I am in God at the moment. Okay? I don't know about you, I did not like being a sexaholic. Okay? I did not like the fantasy, I did not like the lust, I did not like any of the disease, I didn't like the isolation, I didn't like any of it. But there comes a time in the program where we have to surrender to the fact that who we are and what we're doing is a sexaholic, and that becomes okay. Okay? 
when we get to that place of absolute surrender, we're no longer in charge. For those of you who have worked the steps, and you get into step three, and you turn your will and your life over to the care of God, and you go on to step four, and you start doing the inventory. Anybody here had a struggle with finishing the inventory? Okay. You know what my sponsor said? Go back and work the previous step, because there's something there you haven't surrendered to God. Anytime I stumble up against one, if I go back and work the one before it. Well, if, if as I read through the AA Big Book, what it says was, if I turn my will and my life over to the care of God, I was turning it over to a new owner, a new manager. Okay? I was no longer in charge. Okay? I'm no longer in charge of, of my life of lust. I'm powerless over it. If I don't have somebody greater than I, I can't stop. So what the program has taught me is, if I turn my will and my life over to the care of God, and then I start doing this four-step inventory, it's no longer my inventory. It's just the things that I did to act out, and I give it back to the boss and say, okay, here's, here's what's on the shelf. What do you want to do with it? I'm not in charge of the inventory, only taking the inventory. But I give it back to God and say, this is yours. Now, steps five and six. Ask God to be willing to take the character defect away or to heal. I use the word transform when we're doing the third step prayer. Probably you've never heard me. If God took away everything that I didn't like about myself, there would have been nothing left. So I ask God to transform those difficulties. The victory over them may help somebody else. Okay? So every single thing that was on my list that I did that I was acting out, lust was a pretty big key. It's no longer my responsibility other than to give it to God and say, this is yours. Now what do you want to do with it? Well, if God wants to remove lust from me, he's certainly big enough to do that. Okay. If he doesn't and he wants to leave it there a little while longer, I need to get to that place of acceptance and say, thank you, God, for whatever reason you're leaving it there for a little bit longer. Because I'm no longer in charge. I've just taken the inventory and I've given it to the owner. Okay. I'm not my owner anymore. I'm not in charge of this life. You know where I got by being in charge of my life, right? Okay? So if anybody else has struggled with that, that's the same thing. So I continue to do this inventory, but when I do, I'm free to promptly admit it because it's not my inventory. It's just something that God asked me to write, and I say, okay, this is what I did. And he said, okay, now what do you want to do with it? Well, I don't want to hang on to it. I want you to remove every single character defect that's in me. Lust was just one. Okay, the people that shared at the at the at the luncheon and, and the the other talks, that's what they've been telling us. You know, this isn't about sex. Okay, it's not really about lust. For those of you who read the AA Big Book, it says alcohol is a symptom. Okay, my real problem is not lust. My real problem is I'm trying to be God in my life. And when I quit being God in my life, then God was free to be God in my life, and all of the character defects, all the things I struggled with for 40-some-odd years before I got into recovery, started to just fall away. Okay? The book says that we have a daily reprieve based on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. This is not a physical program. This is a spiritual program. And when I forget that, I want to get back into lust, because I think lust is going to fix me. Never did before, but something now is going to be different. And the truth of the matter is, nothing's going to be different. If God can't relieve me of that compulsive energy, that desire to lust after some being, or as the big book says, some person, place, thing, or situation, 
That's what I need to accept. I need to accept that they're exactly where they need to be. When I get to that place and I, then I turn it over to God, I absolutely surrender because I can't fix it. A miracle happens. I haven't had to lust in some time. It's not an option today. It's not an issue today. You know, if sex is optional, lust ought to be even more optional. You know, I don't have to do it. I can choose not to lust today. What a concept. Because I'm no longer in charge of my life. I've surrendered to a power greater than myself. So, um, I, I, I think for us, we want to have all the answers. Okay? How do I stop lusting? I don't know how you need to stop lusting. I don't need, I don't know what you need to stop doing. Okay? I quit being God for you. Okay? But I know who is, and I am not God. So, my encouragement is, you ask the power that's greater than yourself to restore you to sanity, and because I believe that he's a God that loves you, he'll probably answer the prayer. But if you ask him just to take the lust away, we're still focused on the problem and not on the solution. The solution is, because I'm lust-free, I can share with you today. I can communicate with you today. I can listen to you today. I don't have this agenda going on in my mind about what I want to do to you or what I want to say next or how I'm going to approach something. Okay? I've never had that freedom in my entire life. Okay? The freedom that I have today. And it's all because I let go and said, I can't do this anymore. That's step one. I can't fix you. Okay? I, I wish I could just take this magic pill and say, here everybody, you know, you're free, you know, you can go out and, and interrelate with everybody out in the world. You know, the, 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 I laugh about this all the time. You're, you are very sick people, and you're the healthiest people I know, because you're working a program of recovery to stop doing what you were doing before. And what you're doing differently is you're making a conscious decision to, to turn your life over to God and to do something different than you've ever done before. Okay? You know what happens? It's worked. I've seen people around me that have changed in, in amazing ways. Okay. There aren't too many people who know what I used to be like. Liliana is one of the few. Almost everybody else in the program has left that preceded us in San Diego. Okay. I'm, I'm the senior member in San Diego, 12 and a half years, because everybody that's been there before me has left the program. Look around the room, and there are people in this room that will leave the program because it, they feel it's too hard. It's too hard because we get in, back into our isolation and fear and think nothing's ever going to change. But in the fellowship, something mysterious happens. We start trusting another human being with our lives. And that's where the God connection comes in. I look at this with, as God with skin on. Okay? I never recovered when I tried to do it God and me alone. My only recovery has been since I've let you people into my life. Okay? And I'm powerless over people too, just in case you didn't know that. Okay? So there's no aspect of my life that I haven't been able to do that. And so lust is not even an issue today. I, I mean, I, I couldn't tell you the last time that I that I consciously lusted after some girl and I thought, you know, I, I got into a fantasy about what I was going to do. I can't remember. I don't want to remember. I don't need to remember. Okay? I want to know what works for me today and what works for you. And I need to hear your solutions and what's working for you. I'll never hear that if you don't go to a meeting and you don't share your story. Okay? And that, to me, has been the real key of recovery. We, we share a story and something happens, and our lives are changed 
forever. Okay? Some of you will have relationships, like I'm in a relationship now. Some of you won't. I don't know. But I know that as we turn our will and our life over to the care of God, as we understand Him on a daily basis, that something is going to change where we will become willing to have a relationship or not have a relationship. And we're as powerless over that as we are over anything else in the program. So, thanks for letting me share. Um, we're out of time. Um, if, if you need to share with somebody, please grab somebody after the meeting here and talk to them. Um, I'd like to thank all of you for being here, um, for sharing your stories with us. Um, thank you for allowing us the opportunity to share with you. Um, we'll close now with the serenity prayer. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.